This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon to you. Great to have you along today. Before the news headlines at half past 12, Jed Goodfellow is going to be along. He's from the Australian Alliance for Animals. And he says it would be reckless to approve any more livestock shipments to markets in the Red Sea. Also today, and after our cross to the Bureau of Meteorology and checking on that tropical low and what rain is left on it, hopefully a little bit more for those who really need it in northern parts of the state. After half past 12 today, Australia's mining industry and the federal government will have emergency talks later this week. And the focus of those talks will be on those emerging critical minerals industry because in recent weeks, a number of nickel operations have just shut up shop, some here in Western Australia. So what is the future for that industry? We'll get into that a little later this hour. Six past 12. And to kick off today, the state's largest sheep and lamb processing cooperative, WAMCO, says the protracted industrial dispute between the big stevedoring company, DP World, and its employees has created a logistical nightmare for sheep meat exports. But the greatest challenge lies in the Red Sea region, where Houthi rebel attacks on cargo vessels have many shipping lines just avoiding the area, obviously at a huge cost for exporters of fresh chilled products like sheep meat. As a result of the conflict, WAMCO has had to redirect at least eight containers of chilled meat back to Australia to be frozen and sold at a huge discount price. Cole McCreary is WAMCO's chief group executive in charge of the WA plant at Katanning and the Goulburn facility in New South Wales. Cole, let's start at home with the industrial dispute between DP World and its employees. What impact is it having on WAMCO? Uh, Belinda, it's basically slowing the loading and departure of vessels and it's creating delays and disruption, disruption of our schedules. And, you know, it's obviously causing some lines, uh, shipping lines I'm talking to admit, some ports in Australia to restore the um, scheduled timeframes. And this is a fairly serious concern for chilled shipments if, you know, when vessels are delayed or port calls are, ships are sent past ports um, that they were scheduled to call on. So those are the sort of things we're dealing with with that action. And how are you managing it? What changes are you making to try and work around it? We're just doing our best. Uh, we're, it's causing a lot of work, extra work in our shipping department, a lot of toing and froing with the administration side and moving containers from here to there, trying to uh, talk to customers to get them to accept later delivery. It's a bit of a logistical nightmare at the moment. And how much understanding is there from the markets? Uh, I think there's an understanding, but they don't really, they're the customer and they expect product and uh, you know it's hurting the whole of Australia this and you know uh, there's there's many 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 products that are that are being slowly slowed up and it's uh, it's pretty hard work. Which markets are most affected Cole? You know the you know right through up into Europe the Middle East those markets uh, have come under a lot of pressure. And what is it costing you is is that something you can 
put a figure on at this uh, point? I can't really, but I, I mean, it is. It's just extra people's. It's, it's wage costs. It's um, you know, it's people's time. It's it's um, moving. You know, container costs. It's um, port costs of holding products. So you know, it's big costs. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about, especially with the chilled product, um, I mean, at this point, it's delaying things, but you haven't sort of lost any product in the process, have you? Because it's got a, you know, it's got a, a time frame on it, hasn't it? Uh, we haven't through the DP World thing, but we have through the Red Sea issues and getting access to the Suez Canal, yeah. And that's, and that's for most, a lot of processes um, out of Australia, but there has been some some issues there because obviously shipping companies are not going to ship through there while there's um, the risk of uh, you know uh, death really yeah yeah so are you avoiding that area altogether and just to recap I mean in response to Israel's war with Hamas in the Gaza Strip the Houthi rebels have been attacking cargo ships in this Red Sea area uh, into the Suez Canal this has started back in. November and obviously a really crucial corridor for product destined for the Middle East and and European markets. So real disruptions to global shipping. How much product have you lost, Cole? Oh, we've had to uh, move at least eight containers, and we'll we'll have to bring most of those home and freeze down at a cost. And we're talking to our insurance companies at the moment, but there's no guarantee there either. Uh, so it, you know, it could be a, a major cost to the cooperative so it's salvageable because you can get it back and freeze it or are you having to throw it out yes we can freeze it but at a you know at a big cost to get it back and a substantial discount to move it as frozen so can you compare the two situations is one worse than the other or combined it's just kind of a nightmare scenario the dp world situation here with that industrial dispute and what's going on with this major corridor in the red sea uh, we're working around the DP world thing, but it is, you know, we, we're having to uh, at times air freight chilled that would have, would have been put on boats, which has had a lot less money. So it's, you know, there's a cost there, but we we can we can work our way through the DP world issues. But the other issue, uh, you know, we, we're talking about the Red Sea issue. It's, you know, we we could be a week to ten days more voyage for. Um, chilled shelf life on products so it does it does put a lot of our customers on edge and uh, although they uh, you know we've managed to convince most that, that this is the only way to um, receive product at this stage um, they are going with it most of them not all but most are and some have converted to frozen as well but but most are going and taking that on the nose the less sort of the seven days less chilled shelf life that they're going to have on that product. So you're taking that alternative route around Africa, which a lot of other exporters yes. are doing. Is that yeah? Okay. Yeah. Well, the shipping companies are just refusing to go through. So we have we have you know we have no choice but to uh, accept that. And if we're talking about that Red Sea region, how important is that to you in terms of your export market program to that area? What's going there? What's it worth to you? Uh, oh, it'd be a few hundred million. Uh, oh, well, maybe a hundred and fifty million in 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 sales. So you know, it's it's not our biggest market. It's not, but it is. Uh, it's still substantial. Where else is being affected? Because some dry conditions is also affecting 
major corridors into the American markets too, is my understanding, Cole. Is that the situation for you? Yeah, there's a there's a um, bit of an issue through the Panama Canal with the um, low water levels in, to North America. So that's also meaning that uh, quite a lot of containers are having to be offloaded and railed across the canal to meet transshipment vessels. That in itself is another cost, another uh, <laughs> a lot of work. We've got to you know we've got to work work for our farmers to get their products into the market. So it's you know, it's it's pretty um, difficult at the moment. Oh, the whole world, uh, and certainly the more un, the less steady the whole, the whole um, world is, and the more the more sort of outbreaks of war, it's just going to be uh, it's going to be hard work. And so we're hoping that we'll see some improvements there in the in the near future. But you know, who knows with the way things are going? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to put a time frame on when that situation in the Red Sea is going to work itself out. but So you're planning on taking that alternative route right around Africa to get to those Middle Eastern European markets. Well, f- from yes. now onwards, basically, until you hear different. Well, it's, it's, been on, yeah, it's been ongoing since um, the start of the year. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we had some, we had those shipments on, on going up through there and we had to uh, reverse them and the, uh, and send most of them back because, um, you know, customers wouldn't accept them uh, 10 days late. So that, that was the problem there. 14 past 12. This is the Country Hour. Cole McCrory is here today. He's the Group Chief Executive of WA's Big Sheep and Lamb Processing Cooperative, WAMCO, and is telling you about how challenging it is to export sheep meats around the world with the current industrial dispute between DP World and its employees here in Australia and the even bigger challenge of the conflict in the Red Sea, diverting ships around Africa at a huge cost to exporters and really avoiding that Red Sea region. Cole, back home here in Western Australia at the Katanning Abattoir, how many head are you currently processing per week? Because back in November, the abattoir was putting through around about 25,000 head a week, more than ever before. What's the situation today? Yeah, between twenty four and twenty five thousand a week. The weeks we can get Saturdays, uh, we can kill over twenty five thousand. And the weeks where uh, we don't can't work a Saturday, that's we're probably about twenty four thousand, twenty three, yeah, twenty three thousand eight hundred to twenty four and a bit. So yeah, very high. Like kill kill wise, we're we're still setting uh, new records on a daily basis, and um, the team's going very well. And how long are you able to maintain that, considering some of the shipping bottlenecks that you're dealing with today? Oh, we'll maintain it. Um, we'll just find a way. But we, we have to keep processing and keep the numbers going through. And on paper, we're booked up, up till, you know, well into the, into the autumn. So um, we're, just, we're just powering on with uh, looking after farmers as they need their stock killed. And what's the, the wait time for a booking today? Oh, well, as I say, we're booked up till probably April, May. So, um, you know. It's a long it's wait. Pretty <laughs> it's pretty solid. But it's, the members are, get, are all scheduled in these. They, uh, and they, they book forward and they know that, you know, they have to be on their game and get their booking slots. And it's, we've gone through the numbers very well, which I'm really pleased with. 
Late last year, you were optimistic about market demand for 2024. Is that still the case today? I'm more optimistic about it, but I was still, you know, there were still some caveats to that. But I, I, I still, well, we've seen an increase in livestock prices in the last few weeks where we've been over lifted schedules quite substantially. Um, so farmers have got should have a, uh, a little bit more confidence in where the market is moving. The market is slowly, there is some slow improvement, but it's nothing nothing great. Um, we're, gonna, we're about to go through Chinese New Year in the near future. Once we get through that into February, we should have a better idea of where world markets are. But um, my feeling is, you know, it's still difficult in China. Prices are nowhere near where they were a few years ago. The, the other markets are reasonably solid. We get, we've got a good ability to move product. We've seen a few increases out of the North American market in recent times. And in Europe, Europe and UK in particular has, has been relatively good. So, uh, and the Middle East has been very good uh, price-wise. So, there is some good good with the uh, with the difficult. What are you offering producers for their sheep today? Uh, Five thirty on, on top line lambs at the moment, but that that's a moving feast at the moment. So that you know that's that's changeable. So you know when when producers before Christmas were back in the fours. So there's been some really good uh, increases in the last two or three weeks. And what's the outlook for 2024? Do you see some upward movement from there? A lot depends on the market. I I still think. Given our mar- you know, where the markets are, we haven't seen any great increases, so it's all margin that's coming off of the processor. We, we you know at, the, at, the, at this point of the year, but in saying that, I, I still think there is some optimism that we will see as we move through twenty four. We should see some more improvement, and I think price will probably improve a bit as well. It's an interesting time for the industry here in WA. I've got really dry conditions. That's pretty consistent throughout the agricultural areas in this state. There's trouble in the Red Sea, as we've discussed, uh, for the exporters. There's the phase-out plan of the live sheep trade expected any day now. How would you describe this moment in time for the industry? Yeah, it's, it's probably a, a watershed moment. But in saying that, I mean, Wanco's put its hand up. We're going to spend a lot of money over the next 18 months on the plant. And we're going to have the ability to process a lot more lambs for WA farmers in the next 18 months, two years. So uh, the plan should work hopefully hand in hand with that. So I, I you know, uh, instead of doing 5,000 odd a day, we might, we uh, we should be up around seven and a half thousand a day, which is significant, which will move a lot more product at peak times, and that's. What we're focused on, it's, uh, we're going to spend you know, close to $50 million to do it and we're putting our money where our mouth is and getting on and getting things done. So that's, that's our commitment to the industry and to producers. And was that investment made because of the federal government's plan policy to phase out the trade? Did that encourage that investment? Not really. Our members sort of demand, you know, we've, we've got to the point where we're pretty much at capacity, Belinda, and we had to do something ourselves anyway. But that paper certainly was another justification to do it. And hopefully we can convert some of the, the um, ship-type lambs into sort of a more, uh, a, 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 you know, lamb that can we can market worldwide in the future as a, as a processed lamb. So, you know, 
there is some big opportunities uh, down the track. And, you know, lamb is a niche product worldwide. It's not getting any bigger in numbers, and I can see a really strong future for it as we move forward because it is really uh, sought after in a lot of pockets around the world. You know, there's only a couple of net, real big net exporters now, and it's Australia and New Zealand, and, you know, it's, it's got a massive future for those who stay with it. Cole, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Cole McCrory, WAMCO's Group Chief Executive. And uh, finishing on a high note there, really, I wonder if you've taken any heart from that for the future of the industry, for the sheep meat industry. Uh, Lamb prices up, as Cole was saying, uh, since the start of this year. They're investing, WAMCO investing around about, what, $50 million on the abattoir, so improving processing capacity. And as Cole was just saying, it's a niche product. There's a big market for lambs, and it's really only Australia and New Zealand supplying the market. So does that encourage you to stick with it? Hopeful for the future. Let me know, 0448 922 That's the text to have your say this afternoon, 0448 922604. 22 past 12. The CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council is now calling on the federal government to intervene and settle the ongoing industrial dispute between stevedoring company DP World and its employees. Patrick Hutchinson is echoing the concerns that you just heard from Cole McCreary. He says meat due for export is passing its use-by date stuck on the docks. There's an increasing amount of meat that is being stuck on these wharves and unfortunately because we're one of the world leaders in the provision of chilled product that it runs out of um, the opportunity for shelf life and it has to come back on the domestic market. We're getting excess inventory now because we can't load out product. We're getting increases in dis- disruptions and, and logistics costs, which are increasing on us, like demurrage. And we're also having customers who are starting to ask questions about the reliability of arguably the world's most reliable red meat supplier being Australia. And if we're not able to meet those requirements on that chilled product, which is probably around you know, depending on our market, but it's around one third of everything that we export around the world, then it's going to be taken up by somebody else. Are we talking sort of million dollar losses? Um, Inevitably, it will be, I think. Obviously, product is also insured, but if these are also issues where if you start to have uh, loss of product, insurance policies and insurance claims go up. So that's why, you know, we've called for a number of things from the government uh, in around their intervention. We've seen um, Minister Burke come out yesterday around this issue saying that they won't intervene. I have to say I'm somewhat incredulous that it's become a personal attack on the individual DP world, which again just shows that this has become a uh, a, a union versus company-based issue and farming in, the farming industry, the agricultural and food industry has been forgotten. But he's saying, Tony Burke is saying that, uh, you know, the container increases uh, of 52%, you know, they've been put up by DP World. Even Graham Samuels criticised their increases there. And he's saying, you know, who could blame the workers for asking for a, um, an increase in pay? Well, I mean, that's, that is a, uh, that's conflating uh, about four or five different issues into one in order to ensure that you back your union buddies. So I don't think that that's necessarily a, a, a fair and discussive argument. 
what we've been saying is is that we need to see consistency about removing containers from terminals. We don't want month-long delays at ports, especially for people who, as we understand, are earning between $175,000 to $200,000 a year. Patrick Hutchinson from AMIC. DP World says the dispute is costing the Australian economy $84 million a week. The company's head of corporate affairs, Blake Tierney, answered questions from Senator Macalia Cash at the Senate Education and Employment Legislation Committee hearing. Just in terms of the number of containers currently backlogged at your terminals, um, can you quantify that? We currently have 54,330 containers in backlog. From an imports point of view, we'll have motor, motor vehicles, clothes, appliances, furniture and bedding, and also polymers. From an exports point of view, we have meat, dairy, eggs, wool, grains and aluminium that are currently stuck at each of our terminals across the country. DP World and the Maritime Union are in a media blackout today while negotiations continue. David Clawton with that report, 26 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. News headlines is not far away, around about half past 12 today. First, though, the Australian Alliance for Animals says it would be reckless to approve any more livestock shipments to markets in the Red Sea region. Over the weekend, and in light of the region's deteriorating security situation, the industry regulator ordered WA-based exporter Bassam Dabar to immediately return a consignment to Australia. The shipment of 15,000 sheep and 2,000 cattle destined for the Middle East, is now on its way back to Australia. Jed Goodfellow is the Director of Policy with the Australian Alliance for Animals. Jed, industry says this is the best option for this ship to return to Australia. Do you agree? Uh, yes, we, we do agree. Um, and we are relieved to see that this decision has been made. We, we believe it is the, the right call from the department to order the shipment to return. And uh, and uh, so that these animals um, aren't put at further risk because uh, the, the potential for this shipment to be stranded uh, for some time was was quite um, significant. Uh, so it is the, the right decision. But, um, you know, we, we do have questions about why the shipment was approved in the first place, considering the fact that these risks were very much known to the department and indeed to the to the exporter and the industry. Um, I mean, the Houthi rebel attacks have been going on since November. Uh, and this shipment was was approved in early January. So um, the risks were there, uh, yet uh, they saw fit to continue to approve the the shipment. So, you know, it it does seem to be indicative of the risk-taking behaviour that exporters do engage in within this trade. And uh, it seems like in this instance, animal welfare, again, was was a secondary consideration in in approving the shipment to take place in the first place. What do you think should happen to the sheep and the cattle, because there are some cattle on this voyage as well, but 15,000 sheep, 2,000 cattle, what should happen to them on arrival back in Australia? Yeah, look, obviously this is going to be a decision between the the government and the exporter, I would imagine, who would still have ownership of these animals. Um, I mean, we would hope that the animals are going to be offloaded and uh, and dealt with in Australian supply chains here. Uh, it would be concerning to see them if, if they were going to be re-exported because of the um, you know the distress of the duration of the voyage already and the loading and unloading uh, just adds to the cumulative stress of the animals. So we would very much hope that these animals are going to be uh, processed here in Australia to Australian conditions.
Well, as security concerns continue in this corridor, how should the regulator, the Federal Department, approach future applications to export livestock to this region? We we would hope that the regulator would not approve any further shipments into the Red Sea during the conflict. I mean, in our view, it would just be the height of recklessness to be continuing to approve shipments into that conflict zone when we've had to order one to return to Australia because of of the risks. So, and we would very much hope to see some industry leadership as well to see the Australian Live Exporters Council come out and uh, and and impose a, a voluntary suspension on shipments going into the conflict zone at this time. Uh, they do, you know, profess to be very concerned about animal welfare. So, if that is the case, uh, it would be great to see some leadership from them uh, in imposing a, a a a voluntary suspension during this period. Now, the industry said the reason that it supplies these markets in the Middle East, you know, it's, it's a business, of course, but it is about food security too. And when geopolitical tensions are heightened, that becomes even more acute for these markets. So, I mean, how appropriate would it be to simply cut off an important food source to people in this region? Look, the, the, the fact is we send seven to eight times uh, more meat to the Middle East via the uh, frozen and chilled lamb and mutton trade than we do uh, live animals. The, the live animal market makes up a very, very small percentage of the food supply for the Middle East. So we can continue to contribute to food, food security in the Middle East via shipping um, and, and transporting via air freight, frozen and chilled Australian lamb and mutton. And, and that, that is the, the trade that is much more sustainable and much more secure. But and, isn't uh, it a growing it, market? I mean, we've just seen a shipment go into Saudi Arabia, a small shipment, but the start and the reopening of that particular market. Well, we're yet to see um, because that was a, a, an experimental voyage. Um, so we don't know where the market for Saudi Arabia is going to go. Um, obviously, still with conflict in the region as well, um, there's you know significant uncertainties about uh, the stability of that trade as well. Saudi Arabia is not uh, the most reliable trading partner um, as well. And uh, when we're applying the, the SCAS, the Exporter Supply Chain Assurance System, in Saudi Arabia, you can guarantee the first instance of uh, non-compliance with the SCAS and when the Australian government is compelled then to uh, enforce the SCAS, no doubt there will be diplomatic concerns and tensions arising with that market. So there's certainly no assurance that that market will continue to grow. Now, Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is expected to announce a phase-out plan for the live sheep trade by sea any day now. Have you got any insights, any intel on when that might happen or what the phase-out time frame may be? No, no, we, we don't, Belinda, but we're very, very, obviously very interested to see what the government's response is going to be. Uh, we don't have any insights uh, in terms of when that announcement's going to be made or, or what's going to be part of the part of the package. But uh, we would be hoping that the government will be making an announcement um, sooner rather than later because uh, all stakeholders want uh, that certainty and they want to see what the future pathway is. Jed, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Belinda. Jed Goodfellow, he is the Director of Policy with the Australian Alliance for Animals. It is 28 to 1. Time for an update from the newsroom with Herlin Corr.
Thanks, Belinda. In the headlines, WA's Corruption and Crime Commission has recommended a man who allegedly gained nearly $300,000 through fraud while working at a hospital be referred for possible prosecution. The Commission's tabled a report in Parliament about senior biomedical engineer Suresh Kumar, who was responsible for maintenance of medical equipment at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital and ordered parts. The Commission alleges he set up a business registered for or to his wife, rather, and added it as a supplier to gain a financial benefit. Colleagues of Scott Morrison are paying tribute to the career and legacy of the former Prime Minister after he announced his resignation. Mr Morrison intends to leave Parliament at the end of next month, ending a 16-year career. And Australian cricket captain Pat Cummins has joined the push for a change to the date of Australia Day. The captain spoke in Brisbane ahead of the day-night test, which starts on Thursday against the West Indies. Cricket Australia will make no public reference and will not acknowledge Australia Day during the match on Friday. More news at one. Helene, thank you for that update. 27 to 1. Just a little heads up about the Country Hour later in the week, uh, Thursday and Friday, because the second men's cricket test match starts. Uh, this is between Australia and the West Indies. It starts on Thursday. It is a day-night match that's being held at the Gabba in Queensland. And play starts bang on midday WA time, which is a bit rude, isn't it? Because that's the exact same time the country hour starts here. And uh, really, they should have made other arrangements. But anyway, on Thursday and Friday, maybe even Monday, if the test goes that long, that is, uh, there won't be a country hour on your old-fashioned wireless radio. But on those days, you can still stream the country hour. Now, you can do that via the ABC Listen app. Download the ABC Listen app and just search one of your... Uh, regional stations like the Midwestern Wheatbelt or the Great Southern, and you can listen to the Country Hour live, same time, or search ABC on the web for the ABC WA Country Hour, and you can also stream the program straight from the website. And of course, the podcast is still going to be available from the normal platforms when you listen to the podcast, which means you can listen to the program whenever you like. I'll remind you about that again tomorrow too. 25 to 1, still to come between now and the news at 1, it's off to Mushe for the results of the sheep market and also Australia's mining industry and the federal government are getting together later this week for some emergency talks. You'll hear the details shortly. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Luke Huntington with you this afternoon. Luke, let's start in the north of the state. I hear there's some storms in the Pilbara, Midwest Gascoyne region happening right now. Um, yeah, that's right, Belinda. Uh, well, the, the main activity is actually occurring with that tropical uh, low um, that we've been speaking of uh, recently. Um, so, yeah, we've still got the severe weather warning out uh, for that for heavy rainfall, and that's through the uh, parts of the southeastern Pilbara, uh, the northeast Gascoyne, and the far western north interior. So, um, we don't have any much obs throughout that region in the last 24 hours, but um, just notable rainfall has been uh, recorded at uh, Telfer. So, uh, to 9am this morning, they had 50 millimetres, and since 9am, they've had another uh, 50 millimetres. So they've had about 100 millimetres over the last 12 to 24 hours, and that's pretty, pretty much what we're expecting within that 
uh, near that tropical low today. So um, falls around that 30 to 80 millimetres, isolated um, around that 100 millimetres. And um, that's it basically in those areas that I just mentioned. So through the, the far eastern Pilbara there, um, western north interior. Um, that, that low is in the western north interior at the moment, but it does move into the eastern Pilbara uh, later today. So uh, the focus of those heavy falls will be through that inland uh, Pilbara in coming days. So um, if we skip ahead to tomorrow with that low, uh, it looks like the focus of the heavy rainfall will be sort of around that Newman area, um, probably just east of Parabadu, um, but that'll be the, ma the main area. And we could still see falls um, around 40 to 60 millimetres in that area, isolated falls up to 100. Um, and then uh, through other areas of the state, uh, through other areas north of the state, so we are seeing those showers and thunderstorms uh, right throughout the Kimberley um, into the north interior and through central parts of the Pilbara. Um, we did have quite a bit of rain over the far northern Kimberley coast in the last 24 hours, so 150 millimetres at Columbaroo. That really had nothing to do with the actual low itself. That was just um, just the, sort of the monsoon over the area and getting frequent showers and thunderstorms. Um, but we are expecting those showers and thunderstorms to continue over the Kimberley um, and over the North Interior over the next uh, few days. Um, once we get to Thursday, the tropical low probably washes out sort of into, into a trough. So there'll still be a lot of moisture around over that area. So we're still expecting uh, moderate heavy falls over the inland uh, Pilbara. So 20 to 40 millimetres, isolated 60, right throughout that region um, near Parabadu and Newman. Tom Price would be the bullseye area. But also what it's going to do is it's going to drag some moisture uh, further southwards um, as, as well. So it'll probably extend through the northern eastern gold fields uh, down into the Eucla. So those areas could even cop that 20 to 40 millimetres isolated 60 on that Thursday period. Um, and then as we head into Friday, um, we still see the moisture hanging around right throughout the, that Pilbara region, probably getting more into that northern and eastern Gascoigne as well and into the northern gold fields. So again, around uh, 20 to 30 millimetres in that area is possible, isolated to 50. Um, that would be more associated with um, sort of um, thunderstorm activity. So there could be some heavy falls associated with those thunderstorms. Um, but And then the Kimberley region, uh, most of the rainfall is going to be concentrated in the northern parts of the Kimberley. And how's it looking across the southwest land division this afternoon and for the rest of the week, Luke? Yeah, well, it's going to be fairly quiet, actually. So we do have a ridge of high pressure dominating that region at the moment. So um, it's pretty much creating um, mostly clear conditions. There's no rainfall uh, forecast for the next uh, couple of days. Um, we don't actually see any rainfall for the outlook period, probably in, not until the till the weekend where we do see some moisture coming down from that Pilbara um, into, the, into the Wheat Belt and Great Southern. But that's yeah, not till later in the weekend. And warnings this afternoon, Luke. Yeah, we have a f quite a few warnings uh, out at the moment. So we do have um, that severe uh, weather warning for the for the heavy rainfall, and we also have um, quite a few flood. Um, uh, products issued at the moment. So there's a flood watch uh, for the Fitzroy River, um, the Sandy Desert, DeGray River, Pilbara Coast Rivers, Fortescue River and Ashburn River. There's a minor flood warning for the Fitzroy though, uh, River and uh, the, the final flood warning has been issued for the Ord River. Um, and uh, oh, yeah, there's, there's still quite a bit of heat over the um, 
west western Pilbara, so we still have a heat wave warning out for those guys. Um, very hot temperatures still expected um, over that area today, so Parabadu 48 degrees. Luke, thanks for going through the details. 20 to 1 and Richard Hudson here. Now we'll go through the rainfall figures in just a moment, but some fire information, Richard? Yeah, same as yesterday. So due to the risk of fire, a total fire ban remains in place today for parts of the Pilbara. So that's affecting the Ashburton and Exmouth shires. So the normal thing of no lighting any fires and no activity that could start one. So no cooking, camping or hot work such as grinding, welding and gas cutting. And if you want to know more about total fire bans or see a map of the areas, just do a search for emergency and WA and you'll get all the latest on any emergency activity and total fire bans. As far as rain activity goes, nowhere at all in the entire Southwest Land Division forecast districts got any rain. Nothing in the Gascoigne interior or Goldfields or Eucla, nothing out on the islands. In the Pilbara, interestingly enough, the only one that registered anything was Telfer's airport recorded 51, but this is up until 9am, so I'd imagine there'll probably be some more rain since then. In the Kimberley, though, there was, again, a fair bit around. Debisa 8, Drysdale River Station 5, El Cuestro had 19, but that's over four days. Columbaroo in just 24 hours had 182 Kundanara's Deep Herd Station recorded 16, Lansdowne 10, Leopold Downs 19, Mount House Airstrip 45, Mount Krause 28, Mount Winifred 11, Nicholson 16, Nita Downs 11, Old Mornington Homestead 29, Theta recorded 26, Troughton Island 23, Truscott recorded 155, Winjana Gorge 30 and Yampy Sound 8. One place in the Kimberley that uh, only got about four mils in the last 24 hours was Ruby Plains Station. So the Kimberley Station is about 40 kilometres south of Halls Creek. And you might remember Halls Creek had just over 140 mils over the weekend. Jenny Riggs is at Ruby Plains Station and says, so far, it's actually been a relatively dry and patchy wet season, but... Late last week, they did receive some very good rain. We've had over 250 mils in the last four days, I suppose. Um, that's just here at the house. Some of the other outlying areas have had over 400 mil in the last, um, well, since the 1st of January. Yeah, is that good news for you? What does it mean? Yeah, mostly good news. It's been steady enough, but there's been a couple of really large falls. It's got a little bit of worry that it'll might do a bit of damage. Have you had a chance to assess that? No, we won't be able to get out there for a while until we get a bit of sunlight and it dries out a bit. Some small concerns about damage, I guess. What are we? What would that look like? What are we talking about? Um, erosion more than anything. Then big falls will take, you know, wreck dams and wreck roads and stuff. But we did have a major windstorm here the other night it took out some very large trees around the house so yeah we're in the process of cleaning all that up Jenny Riggs from the Kimberley's Ruby Plain Station speaking to Tom Robinson. Some east Kimberley towns have been isolated by these recent heavy rains. The Great Northern Highway has had to be closed, so Kununurra, Wyndham, Halls Creek and other Aboriginal communities have now been cut off. And you can read more on that on the ABC Kimberley website. 17 to 1. Earlier in the hour, you heard from Jed Goodfellow. He's from the Australian Alliance for Animals. 
and he was saying that it would be reckless to approve any more livestock shipments to markets in the Red Sea. And of course, this follows that shipments that's been turned around from that region and now on its way back to Australia with 15,000 sheep and 2,000 cattle on board. It should be back in Australia in about a week's time. Uh, John Hassel on the text says, Jed Goodfellow is an activist representing animal welfare without one cent going to that animal welfare. He's a fraud and a disgrace, according to John. Uh, Tony in the top end says, do the animal rights gurus ever think about the starving people in other countries with no refrigeration? It's all good for them living in Australia, getting wages and donations to keep them fed. If the trade actually shuts... I think a donation of 50,000 sheep to the animal activists will make them realise how much it takes to look after them. Thank you, Tony. The text 0448 922 604. Quarter to one. Australia's mining industry and the federal government will have an emergency meeting later this week. It's all about our so-called emerging critical minerals industry because in recent weeks a number of nickel operations, some of them here in WA, have been mothballed. Players such as Andrew Forrest are saying market demand just isn't there. Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King says one option is to try to convince other countries to pay a premium for ethically sourced resources from Australia. Well, the, the thing about uh, nickel and lithium and, and other critical minerals is, uh, and particularly the critical minerals, and nickel's actually on the strategic materials list, is the fact that their their markets can change quickly and fluctuate quickly. And we've seen this with lithium certainly in the past and also with nickel for that matter. So these, these talks are what we'd ordinarily do when there's a, a matter of concern. I'm very open that I like to consult with industry and experts about uh, seeing what they think government can do best uh, to help them when we're in a context where, you know, there's not going to be hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidies into this industry because our federal budget simply can't sustain that. But there are things the government can do and there have been some suggestions and I'm bringing these groups together to have a bit more of a, uh, a deeper dive into how they think government can best help them. And I'm doing that as well with uh, the Western Australian uh, Minister for Mines, uh, David Michael, as well. So I look forward to these talks later this week. As I understand it, uh, what's going on in the nickel sector is largely the result of Indonesian production and uh, their products. Why are you stepping into this market? Well, I'm, I'm not stepping into this market. We've produced nickel for a long time in, in Western Australia and across the country, but in particular WA. I mean, the Nickel uh, refinery in my electorate is uh, older than I am. So, you know, we, we've had a market for this. The Cambalda uh, refinery as well has been in existence for some time. Uh, it's just the use and popularity of nickel has changed. It used to be used for stainless steel, but now it goes into batteries. But what we saw uh, a little, a few years back is Indonesia put a ban on export of unrefined nickel, uh, which then led to an extraordinary amount of international investment into uh, their nickel refinery. So it's a different competition than it was uh, six or seven years ago, and that makes it difficult sometimes for Australian businesses to compete when we do have much higher standards than many of the other nickel producers in the world. Uh, So that's how we can work together to get to a uh, a good position for that nickel industry is what I want to talk to industry about. Yeah, and if there is such fluctuation, 
in the market, what realistically can government do? Well, what we know is that Australia produces nickel well. And when I say, well, you know, we have good governance, we have good environmental processes, we have uh, good consultation with the traditional owners of land, we have high work standards and very high safety standards, people are well paid in the industry, and that's not necessarily the case with our competitors. We are a high-cost uh, country, but but that's a good thing because it means our people are getting paid well so that, you know, uh, that they have a high standard of living. So then you've got to compete uh, with, with lower-cost producing countries. So what some of the suggestions have been is around how do you account for that high ethical standard of nickel production in the price of nickel and the pricing of nickel. Now, that's an international markets question, and it's really, you know, something I'm trying to grapple with, but this is what federal governments are here to do, is to lead international discussions on how you can, you know, make sure there is a premium on ethically sourced and ethically produced high standard nickel sulphide. Uh, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about later this week. Federal Resources Minister Madeline King with Joe Trilling. 11 to 1 here on the Country Hour. One of the nickel miners that's decided to mothball operations is Canada's first quantum minerals, and it was mining nickel at Ravensthorpe. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be any mining activity in that south coastal region, and that's because Medallion Metals is saying it's found some more gold-rich ore at its Ravensthorpe gold project. Managing Director Paul Bennett says the discovery is a confidence boost for a project still in development. This announcement is really a follow-up to the pre-feasibility study that we released in October of 2023. That announcement demonstrated that deposit that we've been drilling at the Cundit Mining Centre, located about 17 kilometres southeast of Ravensthorpe, can produce 780,000 ounces of gold and 16,000 tonnes of copper over a nine-year life. That's roughly a 92,000 ounce per annum uh, run rate on a gold equivalent basis. And then the ore reserve release that we announced yesterday that's demonstrating that we have the ore reserves a, a certain confidence level in the deposits and the ore reserve that we released yesterday, 610,000 ounces of gold, demonstrates that a significant portion of that study mine plan is in that higher confidence level that should give investors confidence in what we're proposing to do down there at Raby. How does this stack up against uh, other gold projects uh, that are operating or, or that have worked there in the past? Well, it's been a long time since there was a functioning gold or copper project uh, in Ravensthorpe. It used to be a significant uh, copper and gold uh, production area in, in Western Australia, but over the last 50 to 60 years, that hasn't been the case. Uh, and we are focused on returning Ravensthorpe to a significant gold and copper production centre in WA. There isn't a operating gold project within... 300 kilometres of Ravensthorpe at the moment, and that really necessitates that Medallion look to build uh, its own standalone uh, processing plant at the Cundit Mining Centre or or somewhere on our tenements. Um, And so that requires that we build that critical mass of metal to support that capital investment. Medallion Metals Managing Director Paul Bennett speaking to Andrew Chounding. 
and he says the company hopes to make a final investment decision within the next 18 months. Just a few moments ago, you heard from Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King, who's going to have emergency talks uh, with Australia's mining industry a little later this week. It's all about uh, focusing on those emerging critical minerals industry, and that's in response to what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, those nickel operations, some in WA being mothballed. And she thinks one idea is to try and convince other countries to pay a premium for ethically sourced resources from Australia. On the text, this says, ethically sourced nickel, you can't be serious. No buyer is going to give a toss where it comes from, the world market is just that. The text 0448 922604. It is eight minutes to one. We'll get to the market shortly, to the Muche sheep market yarding and prices. First though, a few people in Western Australia's Midwest are selling cold soup made from locally grown vegetables. The soup is called gazpacho. It's made from tomatoes, capsicum, onion, carrot, garlic and cucumber and it's served chilled on a hot day. It's a Spanish dish and the two people behind this venture know a thing or two about gazpacho. Leticia Martinez is originally from Mexico and Sonia Garcia was born in Spain and came to Geraldton 10 years ago. Today's a sunny day and you need to drink a lot, you Okay, gazpacho, according with many people, is a cold soup, cold uh, tomato and other vegetable soup. According with me, is gazpacho. So it's a delicious blend of tomatoes, cucumber, uh, capsicums, little bit of garlic, little bit of olive oil. So it's a raw soup, I will say, rather than a cold soup because it's not cooked. And everything is raw and fresh, a blend of delicious vegetables. How long have you been making it in in your life? In my life? I think I was born with gazpacho. (laughs) So I'm coming from a city called Murcia in Spain. I think it's the fresh food basket of all Europe. And every family there cooks gazpacho every summer. It's more a summer product. And where all my life, really, I was in every restaurant you find gazpacho in Spain, in every supermarket, and yeah, I think all my life. <laughs> and how did you come to be making it here in Geraldton? Well, me and Leticia we create a Bravo Gazpacho, and two years ago uh, we were thinking that we wanted to do something together as a business, but. Leticia and I, both of us, we wanted to create something that is not only a business, but is also something for the society, putting something in the society. So um, we share a lot of flavors uh, in our culture. Leticia is from Mexico, and the base of the cuisine is also tomatoes. Actually, tomatoes, originally, they came from South America, not from Europe. And, yeah, we thought we're hey, we have the best tomatoes here, fresh, cucumber, capsicum, all the farmers, all the producers uh, producers of this is here, so why not? Yes, I was looking at the back of the bottle of your gazpacho and I saw the ingredients, tomatoes, cucumbers, capsicum. 
it seems like it's a perfect fit for Geraldton. Are all the produce that go into the soup, are they local? Yes, all the vegetables, they are local. Uh, 99% of the ingredients, they are from Western Australia. The only thing that we couldn't find from Western Australia was the oregano and the pepper. So if any farmer produces here oregano and pepper, please let us know. We're happy to buy. <laughs> now, Letitia, I asked um, Sonia this. What does gazpacho mean to you? Ah, for me, it means summer. Summer because the color, the flavor. Uh, uh, summer for me is obviously sun, uh, warm weather. And the gazpacho obviously have this uh, sunny color, yes, and very refresh. Yes, very refresh. Leticia Martinez, Amador and Sonia Garcia Ailea. And the song you heard was composed by Sonia's husband, Simon O'Sullivan, and the singer, Dario Porter. You can read more on the story. It's on the ABC Midwest website. Three minutes to one. Well, recent rain in the state southwest and Great Southern will make it easier for farmers to identify and eradicate skeleton weed. The bright yellow weed can reduce grain yields and quality. So Deep Herd's Martin Atwell is encouraging farmers to survey paddocks over the next couple of weeks. Most plants now would have certainly flowered. The plants that have set seed would have set seed by now. But what it, what it can do is sort of give the plants a second lease of life in terms of that it may refresh the plants, make them a little bit more presented. So it makes them a little bit easier to find then if they're flowering and seeding. They're a bit more obvious. Whether those plants become established depends a lot on the weather from now. So we can extend a dry spell. Seedling plants will generally die off, not all, but most. Um, with that summer rain, like I said, where there's a there's a likely to be a, a flush of um, any seedling plants that are coming through now. Martin Atwell is a project manager with Deep Herd and he was speaking to Kate Forrester. To the markets now and about 12,000 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Mushay market today. That's up around 3,300 on last week. Terry Birkin, hello. What did the increase in numbers do to the prices on offer today? Hi, Belinda. Numbers increased substantially from last week. However, the market remained fairly stable to last week's gains, perhaps easing $1 to $2 over the whole sale. The buying field was a lot lighter as far as onlookers were concerned and the few fresh faces amongst the crowd were not that active on bidding. There was only around 1,200 trade weight and heavy lambs against the volume of secondary stock, so food lotters had good supplies to purchase and paddock buyers were able to pick and choose better runs to store lambs, leaving planer types hard to attract bids. Again, light-conditioned small-frame lambs proved difficult to sell, while lambs with better prospects ranged from $25 to $86 a head. Light lambs returned $60 to $108, while trade lambs sold from $95 to $139, and heavy lambs realised $147 a head. Most weathers carrying weight made $30 to $40, with the odd pen of very heavy weathers reaching $68 a head. The best merino ewe hoggets sold up to $43, and the better crossbred hoggets sold to $70 a head. Bony ewes were also hard to attract bids, starting at $1, up to $15, while heavier ewes with fat cover Range from $15 up to $43 with a skin. Mature rams remain firm, selling from $2 to $42 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much, Terry. The one o'clock news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.